The Guardian. As director of the Francis Crick Institute, Paul Nurse spends his time thinking about the fundamentals of biology that underpin human disease. From unravelling the genetics of cells to rapidly understanding the SARS-CoV-2 virus. One of Paul's early discoveries helped explain how cells control their cycles of growth and division, the detection of a completely new gene that makes sure the cell is ready to copy its DNA and split. His work into what regulates cell cycles eventually won Paul a Nobel Prize. Part of understanding the basic structural unit of all living things has inevitably led Paul to ask what it is about them that represents the core characteristics of life. What do these simple structures do that mean that they are alive? Can we even define what functions separate cells, bacteria, plants and even humans from the inanimate objects that surround us? Is it possible to draw a line Or will we always be left with a murky grey area between life and non-living matter? It's these difficult questions that Paul has tackled in his new book, What is Life? We're in the middle of a viral pandemic and viruses are the best example of it because viruses can evolve by natural selection, so one of the key attributes of life. But they can only grow and reproduce when they're in another living organism inside a cell or in the case of coronavirus in our own cells. So they are totally dependent upon another life form. So is this alive or is it not? And this is the philosophical question that I was starting with. I'm Madeline Finlay and this is Science Weekly. What it means to be alive is a question that's long plagued both philosophers and scientists. In fact, Paul isn't even the first scientist to pen a book with the title What is Life? To find out why we're still struggling to pin down the definition of life, I sat down with Paul last week to ask about his take on the problem. Hi, is that Paul? Can you hear us? Hello? Hi, Paul. Ah, good. We're connected. Yes, wonderful. Okay. What do I call you, Madeline? Madeline is absolutely fine. That's good. Um, And can you call me Paul? Sometimes people call me Sir Paul and I always (laughs) look over my shoulder to see who they're talking to. I'll just stick with Paul then. I'll I'll drop the, the formalities. Now, Paul, I am curious. This is at least the third book called What is Life? We had Erwin Schrodinger's in 1944 and then J.B.S. Haldane's a few years later. Why is it that this question is so hard to answer? Well, it is hard to answer. And the way it's generally been approached is to sort of give a a list of attributes of life. Um, You know, they grow, they reproduce, they have metabolism, they have sensitivities and so on. And if you put all of those together, you get a collection of attributes that distinguish living things from a rock or whatever. But what I found a bit unsatisfactory with that is it doesn't try and explore what the principles might be. And I thought that it would be good to talk about some of the great ideas in biology and then extract from those great ideas principles that could be used to give a more satisfying answer to the question. But having said that, 
it is really still a bit of a list of attributes. So I don't entirely escape from the criticism that I was saying. This exploration of life, you answer the question from five different perspectives. And the first three may be familiar to a lot of people. We've got cells, genes and evolution. But then you go on to chemistry. What does it mean to talk about life as chemistry? Well, I have two ideas that describe how life operates. Life is a chemical machine, and it's a chemical machine which is ordered by the management of information. And so the two ideas are life as chemistry and life as information. And if I can sort of briefly describe that, life as chemistry What that is really saying is that living things make themselves, they maintain themselves, they grow, they reproduce themselves. And all of that is achievable through chemistry and physics, but the the focus is more on, on chemistry. And that is that there's lots and lots of chemical reactions making things that are needed for the um, life of cells, of course, collections of cells make us and every other living thing we can see around us. And um, they're all relying on chemistry. So there's an amazing amount of chemistry going on. And it's very exciting and interesting chemistry. But it is more than that. The chemistry is highly organized. And to become organized, and that is necessary for a cell or a living thing to act with purpose, that is only possible by uh, managing information, that is to connect all the different chemistries that are going on, make sure that they are regulated together, make sure they respond to changes outside um, the cell, outside the living organism or within, um, so that you end up with coordinated purpose. And so that's why it is a a combination of being a chemical machine and an informational machine. All the chemical reactions that I've just mentioned are essentially brought about by enzymes. And most enzymes in living things are proteins. And proteins are made up of strings of amino acids linked together into a polymer. If you have a polymer of many hundreds, three, four, five hundred or more amino acids, the amino acids by reacting with each other can fold up into complicated shapes which have particular chemical properties. This allows them to act as little chemical machines and they can take other chemicals, substrates, modify them and turn them into something else. So it's a very intricate micro chemical machine and that's what an enzyme is. But there's something even more wonderful about this. This sequence is determined by the sequence of DNA in the genome of all life forms. And the storage of information in DNA, and it's a long-term storage, it's a digital storage. We're familiar with digital storage in a computer and so on. But it was actually um, discovered by life three billion years ago. So we're we're three billion years behind life in the linear storage of information, long-term information. But that is translated, if you like, from being sort of inert storage into chemical action through the proteins 
and through being enzymes. And I think that is so such a fundamental principle that I suspect that all life, wherever it may be found in the universe, it may not be based in on the same chemicals, may not even be carbon-based, but I suspect it will be based on polymers for the simple reason that polymers can encode information and polymers can also be chemically active. And so understanding all these complex interactions that make up a life form, how has that led you to answer what life really is and the definition of life? I've got three principles. Living things can be seen as chemical and informational machines that make themselves, maintain themselves and reproduce themselves. And you see that in its simplest form of the cell. The second main principle is that these cells and all living things have a heredity which is based on genes. And these genes are handed down through the generations every time a cell reproduces itself. The genes determine the properties of living things and how they will operate as chemical and informational machines. And then the third principle, really, is that if you have both of those things operative, chemical informational machines, and there's a heredity based on genes, if the heredity exhibits some variability, and it will exhibit variability because there's sometimes errors in copying it and it can be damaged by chemicals or radiation and so on, then the variability allows life to evolve by natural selection. What it sort of means is that you can produce purposeful behaviours, not by a creator or a designer, but simply because the variability in the cells or different organisms that come about because of changes to the DNA results in different behaviours. And if a certain behaviour is advantageous, then that will tend to dominate in successive generations. And therefore, apparently, you achieve purpose, but you achieve purpose not with design, but just by random changes and selecting amongst those a changed organism that is more effective. So as you can see, that isn't a neat dictionary um, (laughs) definition. There's a lot of words in it, but I'm trying to reduce to the real core principles of how we should think about life. And it sounds like that definition takes us from understanding functions to learning why exactly any of this happens, why these functions come to be. It does explain that. They come to be because of this phenomenon of variability in the heredity. So you have in a particular generation a range of different behaviours, but amongst those range of different behaviours, some will reproduce more effectively, and so hand to the next generation more cells or more living organisms which have a particular genetic composition. And this principle of evolution by selection in this way, people now use, for example, to design things. So instead of actually trying to design them from first principles, you can run it through a computer and let the system introduce variability until you get something that actually works more effectively without even fully understanding why. 
in your own words, you've not exactly put forward a dictionary definition of life. And one of the necessities of biology is grouping and characterising and defining. And yet one of the challenges of doing that is there always seems to be an exception. When life seems to exist on a spectrum, even with perhaps a longer definition with lots of caveats, why is it important for us to try and define really what it means? Well, I think the philosophical sort of answer to that is to take those apparent life forms which seem a bit intermediate. You're never quite sure whether they're alive or not. And we're in the middle of a a viral pandemic and viruses are the um, best example of it because viruses are very simple. They, They do have genes made of DNA or sometimes of RNA and they're wrapped up normally in protein coats which are encoded by those um, genes. Now, viruses can evolve by natural selection, so one of the key attributes of life, but they can only grow and reproduce when they're in another living organism inside a cell, in the case of um, coronavirus, in our own cells. So they are totally dependent upon another life form um, to um, actually act as a life form. So is this alive or is it not? And this is the philosophical question that I was sort of starting with. In the end, what I think about viruses is that when they are inside a cell and evolving by natural selection, they're clearly alive. But maybe when they're outside and just a complex compound of chemicals, perhaps we should think of them as being dead. As you said, we're currently in the middle of a pandemic and We've seen the role of science in society and what happens when it comes up against politics. And some argue that science and politics should be kept separate, particularly in the context of COVID. What's your view on this? Well, unfortunately, we can't keep science and politics separate, but we do have to keep some separation. We have to consider what science is telling us independently of what we're trying to achieve. I mean, a good example of that outside biology is, is of course, climate change, where climate change denialists, for example, didn't want to really acknowledge climate change because the only way to deal with it would involve political actions that they didn't like because you have to um, all work together. And they didn't like that very much. And what they did, instead of having the argument at the level of politics, They tried to rubbish the science. And as soon as your politics starts to modify how you think about the science, then things will go wrong. Now, you may come to certain decisions where a political need, for example, overturns what the scientific advice might be. I mean, we see this with COVID, for example, because we don't want to shut down the economy and have perhaps even more disastrous consequences. So there's clearly political debate that has to happen, but it must be built on sound science. What can we do to improve communication between science and policy? I think scientists must be open and transparent and be prepared to discuss what their science means and the consequences of what it might mean um, for society as a whole, and to do that in an open and honest way. And 
it's absolutely critical that scientists earn the trust of the public uh, because the public often won't understand the science very well. Um, even in this book, which I've written for um, anybody to read, there are parts of it which may be a bit of a struggle if you've not had a scientific experience to be able to fully understand it. But scientists need to earn trust. And to earn trust, you shouldn't just talk to politicians when you want money for research. You have to talk to them all the time so that they can see that you're important and relevant. And you have to try and keep the scientific investigations separate from ideology and politics because it nearly always goes wrong. Now, you will have read about the discovery last week of phosphine in the clouds of Venus, a chemical made by bacteria on Earth, which is hard to make any other way. What did you make of that story? And what do you think it could do for understanding life on our own planet? It really cheered me up last week, in the middle <laughs> of all the, the COVID-19 <laughs> stuff, where we it seems such a shamble so much of the time. We've speculated about life being on um, other planets in our solar system for many, many years. But nobody has thought of life being on Venus because of the high temperatures and the toxic gases that swirl around it. So I really like the fact that this observation was made because it makes us now think, oh, well, maybe there is some life form that can actually deal with Venus. So we now have that as a hypothesis and we need to investigate it. And if it is true and there's a life form on Venus, is it different or similar to the life form that we have on this planet? In other words, is it a DNA-based and protein-based life form, or is it something something else? I'm sure it'll be polymer chemistry. But we shouldn't exclude the possibility that there might be some non-living way of making this particular gas, and that it is a consequence of a certain natural chemistry. And I'm sure that um, now there's going to be a lot of investigation into that possibility as well, just to see whether that could be the explanation. And as you said, many of us will be watching very carefully to see where those investigations go. But when it comes to looking for life elsewhere, do you think that your definition will hold? I think the definition will hold. I mean, you can't have a living form if it can't make itself. And you can't produce designed purpose uh, without evolution by natural selection. And the only way I think that can work easily is through polymer chemistry. So I think all of these uh, properties coming together give us a better sense of life. I, I want to emphasize that um, I don't think life has to be based on DNA, RNA and protein. Um, I could imagine other life forms. But yes, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I think my suggestions about how we should think of life will apply to life wherever it is found. Um, but the details of the chemistry could be quite different. In understanding what life is, where do we go next? What's the next question that you really want answered? Well, the first thing I think is all life forms interact one with another. So we're completely dependent upon other life forms, and they in turn are dependent upon other life forms. So there's a whole web of interacting life forms out there in the biosphere. The second point 
is that all those different life forms are related to each other because evolution by natural selection means that they descended from earlier ancestors. And so in a sense, we are all relatives on this planet with all the different life forms. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at my potted plant and I can see it as my relative. So those two points does have a consequence, I think. And the consequence is that if we're related to everything, and if we're also dependent upon everything, isn't this a really fundamental reason for why we need to respect the biosphere as a whole? Partly because it's our relatives, and if we are aware of this, do we not have a responsibility to look after our relatives? And partly it's for our own benefit, because we're completely dependent on other life forms, both for our survival and also for that matter, because nature is so beautiful, on our aesthetic experience whilst we're alive. So I think what emerges from thinking about life is a respect and a responsibility for all other life which is around us. That's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Paul. A link to his book is available on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. We'll be back in a few days' time. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.